a friend of ours tweeted when we were reading through this that, you know, there's like no modesty on a Navy ship. Right, and, right. you know, the walls break down rather quickly. Yeah. So it's quite understandable that the first thing Noah needs is a, is a drink. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to Armchair Theology. Alongside Clay Farrington, my name is Ross Furio, and this is episode two, working through Genesis, and we find ourselves with Noah on the boat. We are covering Genesis 8 through 14 today, trying to stick pretty close to one chapter a day. We're doing our best, but we're also trying to make sure we divide up these podcast episodes in a way that makes sense with how the scripture is flowing. Right. So next week, I think we might get off of our seven-day week just a little bit. But as you said, Noah is left in the boat. And so think for just a minute about all that we covered last week. We, we covered creation, two different creation stories. Two false stories. Right. Adam and Eve and the fruit that they're not allowed to uh-huh. eat. And then, and then Noah. Cain and Abel. Right. And then the beginning well, of I the Noah really story. Well, I guess really three. Yeah, right? I stand corrected. Three. And the Noah story is, you could categorize it as a false story. I do. Well, the fall of humanity. It's, right. it's a little bit different it's than what we specific. see. It's not specific. It just says that everyone was evil all the yeah. time. They were wicked. Right. <laughs> and not the good kind <laughs> not of wicked. Not in the good way. Wicked. So we end with Noah and his family, three sons and their wives and his wife, all on the ark. And it starts to rain. Yeah. So remember, we had that genealogy. It built up to Noah. We had that walk with God language. And then suddenly we get the story of Noah building this massive ark, getting all these animals on there with his family. The rainwaters come. It rises above the mountains. And that's really where we left off was Noah in the midst of the storm with the waters at their highest level on the boat. Yeah. And then chapter eight begins but God remembered Noah. And I love that. Isn't that good? Yeah, I love that. That's the first line in chapter eight where the story turns from the waters rising to the waters starting to go down. And that's how it begins. God remembered Noah. That's it. You you named it. And then immediately after God remembered Noah, we get a long narrative about how the waters receded and how they proceeded to find out how far the water had gone down before they exited. So I feel like, when I was a kid, the way this story was told to me was the the waters rose and then the rain stopped and then Noah opened up his window and let the dove go out and the dove brought back a leaf right. and then that was it. The story's over. There's a lot more. That's not how it goes. Right. There's like two or three attempts before that one where the dove comes right. back with a branch where Noah's like, oh yeah, I guess not yet. Yeah, several yet. iterations. <laughs> yeah. And it starts with a raven. It starts with a raven. And the raven never comes back, right? No. And so then God sends out a dove. The dove can't find a place to land, so it comes back, which begs the question, what happened to the raven? I don't know. And then... Know. Doesn't and, doesn't have quite the stamina of a dove. Yeah. That's and, probably why Noah pivoted, you know, because he's got a limited resource of birds here. So if the raven, <laughs> if the raven can't take the heat, he's got to try something else out. So then the second time he sends the dove, the dove comes back with an olive branch, which I have so many questions about, right? Because... The earth has just been underwater for basically like a year at this point. What's an olive branch doing out there? You don't think a tree could like hold on, man? Like under the water? Isn't that a thing like with man-made lakes where the trees are still standing upright at the bottom? Yeah, but with leaves on them and stuff? I guess it doesn't say that there were leaves on the olive branch. I mean, but like you got to think there's still branches on some of them. I mean, especially after just a year. Well, I'm sure that there would still be branches, but when I read this... It, I get the implication that the olive tree is alive. Yeah, like and it's that green. He's well, I mean, that's that's how like branch. all the all the uh, paintings depict it is this dove flying back to the ark with this big green branch uh, in its beak. And so I think the metaphor is actually that this is an offering of peace, right? And it's not to be taken literally that there's a tree growing that had survived the flood. Well, I mean, you say that verse eleven says this, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Okay. So, so I mean, giving you the idea that it's new growth. It's new growth, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So maybe it was just a very small tree 
that had sprouted and up very quickly. Put a leaf on <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Whatever the point is, I, I do think that the point is to is to draw the metaphor that this is an offering of peace because olive branches are a symbol of peace. Yeah, and you see that. Continue. And so is a dove. Right. A dove is a right. symbol of so peace. So the dove comes back with the olive branch, and then Noah waits another seven days, and then he sends the same dove back out. And this time the dove doesn't come back, which tells Noah found and a place to land, doesn't need to come back to the ark. I'm not sure I've ever put this together, but also a rainbow is a symbol of peace. Yeah. So we have three symbols of peace all right here together. Dove, olive branch, rainbow. Right. Yep. Which seems to be a sign from God. And we're going to get to the covenant with the rainbow in just a minute, but a sign from God that God is relenting in his punishment of humanity. Yeah. So we see that uh, in verse 20, starting that section in verse 20 of chapter eight, right? We see that promise from God start to be verbalized. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of evil from, or I will never again curse the ground because of humankind for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. So there you have God saying, Hey, I'm not, I'm not ever going to do this again. Right. Yeah. And that covenant continues. This is kind of the first covenant that we see God make with humanity Aside from things like telling Adam and Eve, go and be fruitful and multiply, which he's also going to say to Noah here in just a minute. Yeah, Well, yeah, I just read the very end of chapter eight, and then the same theme of this covenant with Noah picks right up at the beginning of chapter nine. Right. And God says again, be fruitful and multiply to Noah. Of course, the reason he has to say that is because we've taken the entire population of earth and cut it back down to eight people. And so... They've got work to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get busy. Yeah, and then yeah. yeah, and then we have verse eleven, and that's where covenant language is used, and it okay. says, "I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And as a sign of this covenant, we'll put a rainbow in the clouds. Right. Right. So that whenever I see the rainbow, I'm reminded to not destroy humanity. Which is God speaking. Which right. I think. I hadn't really noticed that before. Right. God says the rainbow is not for you to remember the covenant. It is so that I will be reminded that if I look down and see that you're misbehaving again, I'll see the rainbow and remember that I said I would never do this yeah. again. You know, just in case I <laughs> Which, forget. like, I don't really know how that makes me feel, man, to be honest <laughs> well, with you. Look, God, you know, he might forget some things too sometimes. And so... It is what it is. Yep. This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So really, this first covenant, it is between God and Noah, but it's it's also between God and it's all humanity. God yeah. and all flesh. Right. Yeah. Right. And the first thing Noah needs when he yeah. gets so, off the boat. So he gets off the boat, the, the lands dry up, <laughs> you know, he he sees this vision for the family that he needs to start and to repopulate the earth. And Noah being the guy that he is, a man of the soil, as yeah. the scripture says. He does what I think, let's be honest, most a lot of, of us, us would, would do. do. Yeah. And he plants a vineyard. If you've lived on a boat for the last year, and some of you all who've been in the Navy or in the military may have experienced this. And there's a friend of ours tweeted when we were reading through this, that, you know, there's like no modesty on a Navy ship and, and, you know, the walls break down rather quickly. Yeah. So it's quite understandable that the first thing Noah needs is a, is a drink. Yeah. (laughs) But of course there's not one at the local, you know, convenience store. So you got to plant a vineyard, then you have to harvest and, and ferment and, it was a while. And all that happens pretty quick, but that's that's verse 20 of chapter 9. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. And then the next verse, he drank some of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So things kind of spiraled pretty quickly they for Noah. They go pretty bad pretty quickly. Um, and this is just a little, it feels like a side story almost that ends chapter yeah. 9 after Noah and his family get out of the ark. Well, it's a story that sets up our understanding of one of his sons, mm-hmm. Ham. Mm-hmm. So Ham goes and sees him naked, it says. And then Ham goes and tells his brothers, Shem and Japheth. And 
It doesn't really say what Ham did, and there are several things that might kind of be implied, like maybe something sexual happened, or maybe Ham was joking about him or making fun of yeah, him. Yeah, like like goes, goes like and that. gets his brothers and says, "Hey, come, come hey, look, let's go look at look, him look at Dad, thing. look at how stupid he looks." Right, right. And so what Shem and Japheth do is they turn their backs and they carry a blanket in and they cover him up. Oh, yeah, they walk backwards so their father so as not to see and, their father and, and, and expose his nakedness, and then. Right after that comes a curse on Ham. But interestingly, it's not spoken on Ham. It's spoken on Ham's son, Canaan. Who had nothing to do with what his father did in response to Noah's drunkenness. Yeah, it's my understanding that Canaan's not even born yet. Right. But I think that gives us a little bit of indication as to why this story persisted in Hebrew I almost said mythology, and I don't mean mythology in the sense that it's not true, but I mean a, an oral tradition passed down. How did this story survive? Because it's why we hate the Canaanites. Yeah, because we don't like the Canaanites. Right. And and this story is a way of illustrating that we haven't liked the Canaanites from the very beginning. We didn't right. like Canaan before he was born, Yeah, much <laughs> less after he was right, born. Yeah. Because this is part of the reason we don't like Canaan. Look at what his father did. What kind of seed he came from, right? Yeah, so the, the curse is, cursed be Canaan, lowest of the slaves, he shall be to his brothers. And then it goes on to to bless Shem. And so anyway, it's just a little interesting, a, a small explanation for why we feel the way we feel about Canaan. And then when we get to chapter 10, the genealogy fleshes out not just the Canaanites, but other enemies of the people of Israel. Yeah, one thing I want to point out before we go any further, while we're on this curse of Canaan and the blessings to Shem and Japheth, is that some pastors we have heard use this as a justification for racist understandings of Scripture and xenophobic readings of Scripture and, and really simplifying things down to, well, you know, the people that we hate came from this guy and the people that we love and that look like us came from one of these other two. And I don't think that's a very good way to read this. I just don't think that's why it's here. I mean, it's, it's kind of right. similar to the to how the mark of Cain has been used, yes. right? It's been used in a very similar way, yes. saying these people have the mark of Cain and we don't. And I just, I don't think the scripture is meant to be used that way at all. Right. I agree. I agree that part of the reason this story survived is because it does help us understand why we don't like Canaan. And there is a racist element to that. And I think we should own it. But I don't think we should take that and then turn it into that's why it was okay to enslave African Americans in the early United States, which it has been used which I, I've heard it articulated that way in some sense within the last 20 years. I mean, this, is, this isn't an interpretation that is last right. used 60, 70, 80 years ago. Right. It's this, this way of looking at this scripture is still being propped up. Now, you mentioned that this genealogy continues in 10, but before it does, I want to point out the very last line in chapter 9 is, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now I want you to take in your Bible and flip all the way back to the end of chapter 5. And remember that chapter 5 was the genealogy. And remember that the pattern in the genealogy, I'll just read one of the stanzas. This is from verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. Seth lived after the birth of Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So, so so-and-so lived this long, then he had this son, then he lived this much longer, and then he died. Right? There's the one anomaly that we talked about, and it's with Enoch, and it says that Enoch walked with God. And we asked, what does it mean to walk with God? And there's not really an answer. Right. Well, then you get to the very last verse in chapter 5. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the the genealogy stops, and we get a story of Noah and the flood. And in that story, in verse 9 of chapter 6... It says that Noah was righteous and blameless, and he walked with God. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're getting a little bit of hints about what it means to walk with God. And then right. flip your pages right back over to the very end of chapter 9. 
After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So the exact same pattern continues, and it is as though we shoehorned the story of the flood right in the middle of it. And I think part of the reason that that story is there is to help us understand what it means to walk with God. Yeah, who knew, first of all, that the story of Noah was framed by a genealogy? There's a genealogy that comes before a long one, and then there's a long genealogy in chapter 10 that comes after. Yes. It is the story of the flood and of Noah is really a part of the genealogy. Yes. And you would I would have never ever seen that before. But so so you've got that story right there in the middle and I do think it illustrates a little bit of what it means to walk with God and uh, an obvious question for us is well hey I want to walk with God what does that mean how do I do that? And this is a difficult story I think to make relevant for us because we're not going to build an ark in our backyards. But when you look at the faith and courage of Noah to step out and do what he believed God was calling him to do, even before it started raining, I think that gives us a little bit of a hint of what it means to walk with God, how it means to show up to life with courage and faith and and live honestly with yourself, things like that, live righteously and blamelessly as it says Noah did. That's Big time. I think that's, yeah. And it doesn't mean that he's without fault. Obviously, we've seen the story already of having a little bit too much wine. He was, he was overserved. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, that's worth pointing out. That's one of those little things I think you need to know and you need to, you need to highlight those verses in your Bible. It's something you're not going to notice unless you read the story all the way through in, in the context of where it falls in Genesis, right. right? I mean, that's something that you would never notice if you just started reading at the beginning of Noah's story and stopped reading after the waters recede. Right. So then we go on in chapter 10 with a genealogy, but it looks a little bit different from the genealogy in chapter five. It's not, it doesn't give ages so much. Now we're going to get another genealogy in just a minute that does, but this one really just defines the groups of people that we see in the ancient Middle East and how they became. Mm-hmm. And they're all ascribed to Noah's family, to Noah's three sons. And going back to Ham, it's like all the people that we hate come well, from yeah. Ham. Well, yeah. So verse six of chapter 10 is where we get the descendants of Ham. And if you read that and remember who the Israelites go on to have conflicts with, you see kind of quickly that the genealogy really simplifies it for the reader saying, hey, just in case you were wondering, all the people, just about all the people that we don't like, they all came from him. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking about Egypt. We already mentioned Canaan. It also says Cush and Put. Cush would be uh, Ethiopia, excuse me, Ethiopia. But then it goes on and it talks about how, you know, one of the descendants was a guy named Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter. And I'm trying to find where the rest of those Canaan goes on and became the father of Sidon and then Heth and then starts naming people that you're going to recognize the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, right? Right. These are all, these are all people who are going to come up later in the conquest of Israel in the books of Joshua and, you know, Samuel and Kings. And they're all Israel's enemies. Which is, again, it's just a really simple way to categorize all of these people. Right. Yep, they all came from Ham. Makes makes a ton of sense. And it makes sense because Ham's the guy who was making fun of his dad for being uh-huh. naked. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, there's actually a very small paragraph dedicated to Japheth, and I don't recognize a single name in that paragraph. It's from verse 2 to verse 5. Yeah, it's five. the very first first segment of that genealogy but that gets then mentioned. after, so there's like one, two, two or three long paragraphs on Ham and, and all of the people that we don't like. Then you get to Shem, and you're going to start recognizing names again because now they're people who are close to the Hebrews. And I want to point out in verse 24... They're just naming people. Shelah became the father of Eber. Eber is a word that means like over the horizon, beyond the hills, you know, from far, I mean, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far far away, away. kind of that's what the word Eber means. And the reason that's key for you to remember is because that is the root word from the word Hebrew, which is what gets ascribed to Abram, in just a few minutes, in another chapter, I think 12 or 13. 
That's just he gets, a, that, he gets called the Hebrew, and that means he's not from around here. I feel like that that's just like a little academic nugget that's yeah. in the midst of chapter ten. I think a, I think a, people a little, need to a recognize preview that. for the people of the Hebrews and how they get referred to later on in the story. Well, because you wonder where does that phrase come from? Where does it what does it mean to be Hebrew? It's not it doesn't obviously come from Israelite. It it doesn't come from, you know, the being called Jewish comes from the name Judah. Right. So where does Hebrew come from? And it comes from Eber. And so when Abram is described as a Hebrew, it's basically a derogatory way of saying he's not from around here. Yeah. He, he's he, ain't, from, he ain't from around he's here. He's from over the hills somewhere right. else. He's from far away. We aren't yeah. even really sure where he's not from. Not even sure. But he's not from here. Right. And that gets us through the genealogy in 10, which, as I said, is not so much a a lineal genealogy as it is an explanation of where the different... Yeah, so I mean, the the last verse of chapter 10, these are the families of Noah's sons according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. We talk a lot about the purposes of genealogies. Usually, as we said last week, a genealogy's purpose is to get you from one recognizable person to another recognizable person. So you, you see who's at the beginning and who's at the end. This genealogy is to help us understand where all these people groups came from. So it's it's an attempt, I think, to connect some dots for us with some people groups. And speaking of giving us the origin story of different people groups, chapter 11 gives us what we believe is another false story, the story of the Tower of Babel. Yeah, yep, the Tower of Babel. And, and we talked about this a little bit when we were brainstorming for this episode and just said, you know, who are we to say this? But this story feels a little out of place chronologically to us. It really does. And it's because the story starts off like this. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So it's it reads to me like a small band of people coming out of the east, which is where they were banished from the Garden of mm-hmm. Eden. They were banished eastward. Right. Yeah. So it feels like they're coming back maybe from that area. It, it feels like a smaller group of people than all these nations that we just got finished describing. Yeah. And it it also feels like this could have been a buildup to the wickedness that was in Noah's day. Right. But, I, I but mean, it has to follow Noah because otherwise it doesn't give us the answer, which is the reason I believe this story was told is to explain different languages and nations from around the world. And if it happened before Noah, then it doesn't explain that because everybody gets wiped out. Yeah. And because remember after Noah, everybody starts from the same place. So then the question, the question has to arise, well, how did we all end up speaking different languages and um, with different cultures and you know, all that stuff. It strikes me that this story answers the exact same question that the previous chapter also just answered, which is the, origin of all of these different nations, you know? And so it's just two different ways, which we've already seen two different creation stories, two different ways to understand the origin of humanity. Now we've got two different stories describing the origin of all the different people groups of the earth. Right. If we all came from one, and then if we all came from one family, Noah's family, how did all the different skin colors and eye colors and hair colors and languages and Mm -hmm. traditions, how did those come about? Well, let's tell the story of the Tower of Babel. Yep. So they migrate eastward, they settle there, and then they start to say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they made some mortar. And then they decided that they were going to build themselves a city in a tower with its tops in the heavens so that they could make a name for themselves. Otherwise, they realized that they would be scattered all over the earth. All right, let's name a few technologies happening here that are absolutely brand new. And when you go back and look at the history of humanity moving from, you know, uh, hunter-gatherer societies, nomadic societies, to agricultural societies, the invention of bricks was a big thing. And not just the invention of bricks, the invention of politics that enabled a group of people to stay together and organize themselves beyond just, you know, the local family, let's say a dozen yeah, or I mean, 20 or to, even a hundred. To build a tower like this, somebody had to be telling somebody else what to do. Right. 
Yeah. So the earliest cities, you know, that, that popped up in between the Tigris and Euphrates, somewhere in that fertile crescent area of the world. And, and to understand what a huge leap it was to go from these small tribal bands to an actual organized city. Think about what is required to make all that happen. We might edit this out, but if you hear that, there's a Bible study happening in a room next to us, and they got some killer music going. Every week, they just jack the volume of that video up so <laughs> loud, and it bleeds into here. Um, I don't think you can hear it too bad. Look, we'll keep so. that in. We can cut, yeah, whatever. We might cut something out. What I was going to say is that verse 5, so they, they, build, you know, they start to build this tower with the goal being that they, the top will be in the heavens, implying that they want to live there, that they don't want to live on earth. And then this is very Garden of Eden language for me, yeah. right? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the mortals had built, which feels like God walking in the garden to me, like God came yeah. down to see it. Yeah. Also, Garden of Eden language is the intention behind Adam and Eve taking the fruit, and that is to be like God. Mm. And that's exactly what they say here. Let's let's build this tower up to the heavens, essentially to be like God. Mm-hmm. And it all comes back to this root sin that, that humanity has always wrestled with, and that is to make ourselves the center of the universe. Yeah, right? which is, you know, I think just worth pointing out that we see that being the, the core sin of Adam and Eve, right? right. This desire to be like God. Right. And then we kind of go through this pretty tumultuous time with humanity, with the flood and, and everything else. And then we get to this place with the Tower of Babel. And it's the same thing. And it's the same core desire, to and, be like God. It's just it's just in a different way. Right. You know, it was once a tree and now it's now we have the means and we understand how to build this tower to put us in the place of God. Right. And so we're gonna do that. It's selfishness. And as humanity evolves and technology grows, we just find new ways to exercise our selfishness. Right. But it's the same desire for us to be like God. Yep. So, you know, God comes down. He takes a look and he begins to see that if they continue to do this, that nothing will be impossible for them. I mean, that's the language that gets used. Yeah. Last week we mentioned how early on in the Bible, the language of God is very human and sometimes even fickle, changing his mind and things like that. And this reads that way. So I just want to read it. God says, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. It's like God is scared. Yeah, I mean, keep going. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad all over the face of the earth. In some of these early stories, and I want to reiterate this, we don't believe that God changes, but the language of God definitely evolves throughout Scripture. And I think you'll find us talking about that more as we keep working through Genesis and and, and beyond Genesis too. I think you'll find us arguing that it's not God that changes, it's how we understand God that changes. I totally believe that. And here, God is presented in a very, almost like a Greek mythology, right? And again, you you have that we language used for God, that we came down and we decided to scatter them, and that changes over the course of Scripture. Yep. And then we have another genealogy. So immediately following, and by the way, before we get into that, don't miss the fact that it's called the Tower of Babel. And as long as we're talking about nations that Israel doesn't like, let's point out Babylon here. Just a right? l- little bit of wordplay going think, on there, I perhaps. Think there's a little bit of a wordplay going on. So then we come into another genealogy, and this one goes back to a similar format where it gives a name, how long they lived, and then they had this son, and then they lived this many more years. And It says each one ends with had other sons and daughters. It doesn't say anything about their death, but the implication is they died. And so we, this one is to get us from Shem, who remember is the, the favored son, let's say of Noah 
all the way to a name that you're going to recognize, Abram. It's basically to get us from, you know, the first, one of the first patriarchs in Noah to the patriarch in Abraham, the biggest character that we've had thus far, or not Abraham, Abram, thus far in scripture. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and say we're going to make this mistake a whole bunch of times. Abraham's name was originally Abram, and Sarah's name was originally Sarai. Sarai. Yep. So we're going to make that mistake a whole bunch today, and we forgive you if you do the same. It's worth pointing out, I think, as we make the transition from this genealogy to chapter 12. Is that your coffee pot? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's worth pointing out as we make the transition from the story of the Tower of Babel through this genealogy to the introduction of Abraham that we've just taken a huge step forward chronologically. Yeah, a massive step forward chronologically. So the first 11 chapters of Scripture are like prehistoric oral traditions that have been passed down forever. And it's not that Abraham wasn't also oral, but now we move into what you might call more like modern history with written language and things like that. And from here on out, we're going to follow people whose names you probably recognize right? and who have a more clear lineage, you know, from one generation to the next. Whereas before we're talking about things that happened hundreds and, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah. We basically moved from these ancient stories to a story in Abram and beyond that begins to give an identity to this, these people right. that we call Israelites and the rest of the story moving forward. Yep. And the ancient stories really serve in the same function as mythologies do. Again, not to say that they're not true, but that they are stories that are like meta stories that are really stories about all humanity and where we came from and how we got to where we are. Now we're going to get into a more specific story about one man and his family. And I think that's key because what we have learned so far about humanity is that God made things good and that we continually mess that up. Right. The question you might ask is, how's God going to fix all this? Yeah. I mean, and the way you phrased it is that Abram is really the beginning of that rescue operation from God. Because you may ask, well, how does God break break those curses, right? And our inclination towards sin. Well, it seems like his first go at it is to pick one family right. and say that he's going to bless them right. so that they can bless others. And that's what we find in Abram. Which is exactly the call of Adam and Eve to be in the image of God, right? Now he just chooses a family to essentially bear his image. Not that all people don't still bear the image of God, but it's as though God chooses one family and says, I want you to be like me so that when everyone sees you, they see what I'm like. So chapter 11 builds with that genealogy. And then chapter 12 at the very beginning plops us right down with the Lord uh, having a conversation with, with Abram. Yes. 11 ends with Abram, his father, and his brother's son, Lot. His brother's name is Haran and has died. And Abram's wife, Sarah. Sarai. Mm -hmm. So there are four of them when they leave their land and they head toward Canaan. But then they stop, you know, midway along the way and somewhere along the way, Terah, Abram's father, dies. But then beginning in chapter 12, this is where you're going to recognize the story. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yeah. And then verse four, very next verse. So Abram went, which to me feels very similar to that verse that we started off today with God remembered Noah, such a simple verse and really just a part of the story but man, it's powerful to me when you stop. And so, I mean, Abram heard all that and he said, okay. And he went. It's faith, simply defined, right? Yeah. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And then Lot, Lot his nephew, went with him. And he I, was 75. I think, you're, I think you're right to point out the simplicity 
in that statement. And, and for us to remember that Abram didn't know where he was going, had never been there before, didn't have a map. Just like our lives often, when we feel like God is calling us into something new, maybe that's a marriage, you know, maybe that's a new career or job, or maybe we're actually moving like Abram did. And we don't know what's around the next corner. We don't know what our future holds. And there's, there's a simply, there's a simplistic element, I think, to this faith and just simply saying yes. Yeah, we're so good at overthinking it. And then yeah. we see stories like this in scripture where it's just so it's like, cut and dry, okay, so go. black and white, so Abram went. Trust God to work out the details yeah. later, and here we yeah. go. I mean, that's what we find here. So here we are, Abram, Lot, and Sarai off headed to Canaan. And again, Abram doesn't know where he's going, but we do. We know that Canaan's going to be the promised land and you know all those things, but he doesn't know that at yeah, the time. Yeah, so as he's passing through there on his way, we kind of get another moment between God and Abram where God appears to Abram and he says, look, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. And so Abram stops and builds an altar to God. Which is a common theme we're going to see a lot in Genesis. This will not be the first altar that we see someone <laughs> yeah, build right. for God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's key. That's important. And they so they kind of get there and but it's like they're only there for a minute and then it says now there was a famine in the land so they head to Egypt. And and that's also not the first time we're going to see that in the book of Genesis. You know, a lot of these themes happen over and yep. over. Yeah. You'll remember with the story of Joseph and and Jacob and the 12 sons. But Abe heads to Egypt. Oh, Abe. It does this, say this, this. This is where the story starts to get a little interesting, though. It is very interesting. Yeah. So they go, and he's worried because his wife is a looker. I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, says Abram. He's worried that that they might kill him and and take her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, when the Egyptians see you, and they will say that is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So he says, why don't we, let's do this. I got an idea, honey. I got an idea. Don't say no until you've heard it all the way out. (laughs) Uh, Let's pretend we're brother and sister. And then, then they could have you and they won't kill me. It's what's funny is at no point does he develop a plan so that they don't take her. It's just a plan so that he lives and And not just lives gets rich off of it. And we're laughing. The reality of the story is that Sarai, I would say, what was abused. I here. think she was I mean, abused she here. was objectified for the sake of Abram's survival. I mean, I, I don't know how else we can read that story, especially if we, if we keep going and, and read bits and pieces of it for folks. Well, this might be a crude way to say it, but I, I think Abram pimped out Sarai at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, when the officials of Pharaoh saw her, Sarai... They praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. Right. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Okay, great to mention there that your translation may just say diseases or sickness. It's the same word that comes up later in Egypt. It's great plagues. Yeah. So another little bit of foreshadow there. Plagues coming on Pharaoh because of the Hebrews. In this case, though, it's just Abram and Sarah, and Pharaoh realizes I've taken... It's almost like Pharaoh is the more virtuous one here, right? It, it reads really interesting. It's like Abraham, Abraham, Abram is willing to let whatever needs to happen to Sarai happen yes. so that they survive. And right. it's Pharaoh, the ones that, that realizes, hey, maybe I shouldn't be doing this with this woman. Right. And that's when he realizes she's Abram's wife, yeah. not sister. Yeah. I mean, he goes to Abram. Pharaoh goes to Abram. He's like, what, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as, as my wife? And then Pharaoh kicks him out. Yeah, like, here, take your wife like, and get out of here. Why? What are you doing, man? Yeah. If you had told me... It's almost like the story paints it to if Ab- Abram had been honest at the gate, right. nothing bad would have happened to them. Maybe. Which, yeah, I don't know if I believe that, but that's how Pharaoh paints it here. Like, so why then, didn't you just tell me the truth, bro? <laughs> why didn't you just tell me the truth? So they leave Egypt, and now it says that Lot's with them again, and the presumption is that Lot's been with them the whole time, maybe, but we yeah, don't so, get anything about Lot. And we the, move into 13 with that. So Lot's with them again, They and at this point, 
Abram and Lot are both so wealthy. And think, you know, for a minute about the nomadic herdsmen that kind of travel through that part of the world, the desert. There's still Bedouin people that do that today. I mean, tiny groups of sheep herders and things just looking for scraps of grass in the rocky clefts and things such as that. But they've got so many cattle and sheep that they can't find enough good pasture. For for all of their stuff combined. I mean, that's what it says in right. verse 2 of chapter 13. Now, They're both Abram, so wealthy. Yeah, was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. So they've got all this stuff, and they can't find enough pasture or space for all of their things. And what happens is their hired help, you know, their herdsmen, end up arguing with each other over where to take their flocks. And Abram says, look, we shouldn't be fighting. Our people shouldn't be fighting. Which I think this story for Abram with Lot is one of his first moments where you see the the leadership potential that he I agree. has. This is a very virtuous moment, I think. Yeah. He basically says, look, Lot, you choose where you want to go, and I'll go the other direction. Yeah, I don't want there to be any strife between us, between you and I, or right. between my herders and your herders. Right. So clearly, we, we need to go our separate yep. ways right now. Yep. And so they're, they're on the mountain, it appears, on the west side of the Jordan Valley, which is, which is on the Israel side of the Jordan Valley. Right. And... They're up in the mountains, and they look down. And you can do this today. If you travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, you kind of come down the mountains, and as you get to the Jordan Valley, just north of the Dead Sea, it's just all green. Like today, there's farms there, and they're growing date palms and things like that. But what's funny is uh, Lot looks down into the valley, and it it even says that it looks like the Garden of Yeah, I mean, he saw the plain of the Jordan. It was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And he sees that, and he's like, "Uh, I think I choose there. I'll go that way. It looks like the Garden of Eden, so we're going to go down there. Now, down in that valley is where Sodom and Gomorrah were, and so some some cities that you're going to recognize, and they're going to come into the story later. But it was a very profitable place to be. And so that's where he heads. And then Abraham goes and settles in the land of Canaan. Right. More in the mountains, yep. where closer to where Jerusalem would be and things such as that, what we understand today is, you know, the heart of Israel. And and then we have another moment once Abram has made his way into that land in verse 14 of chapter 13, another moment between God and Abram where God says, raise your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Rise up and walk through the length of the breadth of the land that I will give to you. Just another sign of that covenant between God and Abram and the plans that God has for Abram's descendants. And that covenant really gets spelled out, and we'll look at it next week in chapters 15, 16, where there's a promise with children and things like that, and the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky, things like that. But yes, you're right. This covenant has been... It's almost like we've been dropping breadcrumbs to get us to that covenant already. Yeah. And then, of course, 13 ends with, you guessed it. Abram building another altar. Yeah, we're going to have a bunch of those. And then 14 seems like a story that's almost out of place. It's almost like, you know what this story needs? A good battle scene. It's almost like, you know, the author could tell that that maybe they were losing some readers up yep. to this point and they needed something to really pull yep. people back into the narrative. We and need so a they, fight scene. They throw in like the first, yep. the first real battle. Maybe scripture. like a car chase, yeah. you know, something yeah. like that. That's yeah. what we need here. Yeah. And so that's what it is. And it's a whole bunch of kings with names you're not going to recognize. I do want to point out one king that's worth, worth noting. Uh, the king title of Goyim, that's in verse one of chapter 14. And the reason I point that out is only because goyim later became a Hebrew word that's a generic word for Gentiles, maybe even a slang word. So if you ever get called a goy or a goyim, that's what that means. It just means kind of like Abram the Hebrew, it's you're not from around here. Right. It's just a way of saying you're not from from here. So the story goes that a bunch of kings attacked a bunch of other kings and Lot kind of gets caught up in the middle of it and gets kidnapped and taken and all of his things are taken and someone escapes and comes and tells Abram and Abram throws together an army of about 300 and something people 
and they go back and they rescue Lot and all of his things and they rescue it's not just Lot. It seems as though they rescue the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And well, yeah, it says, then then he, Abram, brought back all the goods and also brought back his nephew Lot with his goods and the women and the people. So right. Abram goes and rescues everybody. 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 Yeah. So this is a this almost reads like one of the judges' stories, right? Like Gideon or something Again, like, like that. Again, like another shining moment for Abram, kind yes. of back-to-back here. He, right. He, he allows Lot to to pick the better land. And then when Lot gets in trouble after that exchange, he goes and saves him and his stuff and his women and his people. Right. Yeah. The one thing about better land is everybody wants it. And so that's probably the origin of this war. And so they get back and now Abram is being honored by the people and things like that. And this character comes out that you need to know because he's going to show up later in the book of Psalms and then in the new Testament in the book of Hebrews and his name is King Melchizedek of Salem. And I'm sure that sounds familiar to some of you, Melchizedek, because right. it does pop up, I don't want to say consistently in Scripture, but in some other notable places. Well, Melchizedek pops up consistently in Google, and there are tons of conspiracy theories out there about him. The truth is, Melchizedek's name is only mentioned in five or six sentences in all of scripture. Right. But he gets compared to Jesus in the book of Hebrews because Melchizedek means priest king. Yeah. He was priest of God most high and he was also the king of Salem. Right. And Salem is a derivation of Shalom, which Mm -hmm. means peace. So he's, he's the king of righteousness, which is uh, another way to um, translate Sadek which is where priest comes from. So, wow, I'm getting all over the place here. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the word that king comes from. Zedek is the word that priest or righteousness comes from. So he is a priest king. He is a king of righteousness. And as the king of Salem, he is also the king of peace. Now you understand why he gets compared to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, because he's a a two-in-one, right? He's a king and a priest. And he comes and he blesses Abram. And Abram gives him a tithe. Yeah, he gives 10% him 10% of the spoil. One-tenth of everything. Yes, which obviously is also loaded language, right? And it's rife for someone to want to spell that out. Now, the danger is, because there's not a whole lot of detail actually in the text about him, when you spell that out, you could head in a lot of different direct directions. Sure. Sure. But if we just stick to what the writer of Hebrews did, and that is just draw the connection that that Abram saw something in this king, this priestly king, that was worth giving offerings to, then he probably is a little more than just some random king. Mm-hmm. Don't you see? Yeah. Yep. And Melchizedek consistently calls God El Elyon, which gets translated in our Bible as God Most High, correct? Which is a which is a new title for God in the Book of Genesis. We've it is. we've had El and El Shaddai and uh, Elohim Adonai, Yahweh Elohim. Yeah, yeah. Yahweh Elohim. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So those things, and now we've got El Elyon, which is God Most High. And Melchizedek blesses Abram, says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then we get this moment after that blessing is received by Abram that Abram has with the king of Sodom, um, yep. where Abram basically says, Look, I don't, I, don't, I don't want any of that stuff. Right. I don't need any of that stuff. Sodom tries to pay him by saying, keep all the spoil. Right. And he said, I don't want anyone to say that I got rich from the king of Sodom, which is another foreshadow, I think, knowing that Sodom is going to go down. Which is also ironic because Abram did get rich from Sarai living in the house of Pharaoh, but that's neither here nor there. We're right? not going to... Look, Ross, we're not talking about that right now. That's... <laughs> Would you just keep the past in the past? I know. I'm trying, man. I'm trying, but it's so hard. Ross, people change, man. They, <laughs> people change. So anyway, Abram's <laughs> like, I don't want people to think I got rich off this. So no, I'm, I'm not going to take any of this stuff. And so the story ends right there. That's where we're going to stop, and we're going to pick up with 15 next week, and we've got a guest. But 
We wanted to point out, again, looking at a bird's eye view of this week's scripture, yeah, there's so, so much. Can so, we just say that yeah. we should probably break this week down into another two we're or three 14 weeks? 14 days in, which means we're two weeks into our reading plan, and it already right. feels like we have covered so much ground. So much ground. And I remember the first time I read scripture through all the way like this, and I got to around this point in Genesis, and I just began to realize how quickly the story really moves in these first 14, 15 chapters. I think it's because the story of Israel and the story of our salvation, let's say that, really begins with chapter 12, with, with the introduction of Abram. Yeah, because remember, it's through Abram that that this people group of Israelites really find their identity. In. Yes. I think the first 11 chapters of Scripture exist to answer questions like where we came from and why there's suffering in the world and why there's different languages and different people groups and and all of those questions. And it and really illustrates our brokenness. Yes. As, as hum- I mean, gives us example after example of, of just our brokenness. Yes. And then I believe chapter 12 in the story of Abram begins the story of our salvation. Right, right. God's rescue operation for humanity. How is God going to bring people back from our brokenness? And the way he chooses is to start with a family that he says, I'm going to bless. And through this family, I'm going to bless everyone else and reverse the curse. Yeah, I mean, you trace the beginning of that all the way back to this call that is placed upon this man named Abram. Yep. So that's where we land today. Friends, I want to remind you, if you don't mind, to click like, subscribe, follow, share with your friends, write a review. Those kinds of things on this podcast really help. Yeah, it does. It helps show up in other people's feeds so that we can get as many people reading through scripture as possible. We've got a website too that we sometimes keep keep up and things like that. You can find some stuff on there, some blogs and some merch. It's armchairtheo.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. But really, we just... The more you share it and the more you tell folks about it, we believe the more people will be reading scripture and we think that'll change people's lives. And that's why we're doing this. So uh, we just want people to pick up their Bibles and engage it in a meaningful way so that hopefully they will begin to see their story in this story. Yeah. Thanks for reading along with us. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next week. See ya.